That's wonderful. Thank you for that. Well, last night's game did not end the way I would have wanted it to, although I did know it ended the way that some of you wanted it to. But I thought you might want to report that at the Buster Bowl, which is my family's Thanksgiving football game, my team beat my brother's team, and we won bragging rights for 12 months. And just thank you. Thank you for that. But hold your applause because just I would like to point out that my oldest son Caleb threw the last pass of the game and yours truly caught it in the end zone to bring about the real reward of success. So I am thrilled to be here this morning to worship with you. And uh, we're going to be talking about the idolatry of success. But before we do that, I want to ask you a question. And you can think about this. I'd like for you to answer it. You can jot it down. You know, think about it in your mind, maybe whisper, whisper it to somebody next to you. But the question is this, how many places of worship do you think there are in the United States? How many houses of worship, congregations, temples, whatever they might be, how many do you think are in the United States? And for those of you who are stickler for data and surveys, I would point out this is the 2010 U.S. religion census, so data is a few years old. All right, how many do you think there are? Well, based on the criteria set forth in that 2010 religion census in the United States, the total congregations came out to be 344,894. Anybody get it? Anybody get it? <laughs> you think that's high or low? You think that's high or low? Do you think their estimates are right? Well, I, if we think about that for just a minute... I think we would find that number to be significantly low. Because when it comes to places of worship, I think there are many more places where you and I may do that that are not categorized as churches or temples or congregations that maybe were identified in this survey. We just call them by a different name. Tomorrow morning, people are going to pour into buildings that are very close to here, made of glass and steel, and they are going to sit behind desks or in cubicles or in offices, and some of them will find their ultimate sense of purpose, of identity, and of worth in that building. People will actually sacrifice in these buildings. They will sacrifice the best of their time. Some of them will give the best of their effort there. Some will even sacrifice their emotional well-being for what's going on in those buildings. And some will even sacrifice their families there. And I think for many in those buildings, that office is their place of worship. They don't know it, but it's become their temple. There's another place of worship that's found all throughout our community. And these structures are filled with mirrors and people walk around looking at themselves in these mirrors. And they like to stretch their personal limits while they're in these buildings. And for some reason they wear tight-fitting clothing while they do it. And they work themselves into a frenzy of sweat and heavy breathing. And some of them will sacrifice more there this week in order to pay for their sins of last Thursday. And maybe some of you. Because this place has become, these gyms has become their place of worship. There's other buildings that are scattered all throughout the Midlands, but the biggest ones are right close to this building downtown. And these temples have a big safe inside. And many people, uh, they place their uh, ultimate sense of security and how much money they keep in the vaults of that building. 
And they will offer sacrifices so that they can store more and more in those safes and those banks. And you know, our God is very often what we are willing to sacrifice for. And so for many people, these banks have become their place of worship. Some people did their best worship of the year this past Friday when they went out and spent hard-earned money on good deals or things they just couldn't live without or just the best deal of the day. Others did their best worship yesterday when they filled into these giant open-air temples that are all over our country. One of them's up in Pickens County. 80,000 people in orange and white or garnet and black. And their God was what happened on that field because they're willing to worship again. We are a worshiping people. And we can't help it. It's just the way we're made. We all treasure something above everything else. We give our devotion to somebody. We offer our sacrifices to something. We look for our worth somewhere. Well, in ancient Israel, these uh, rival gods were called idols. But the idols have not gone away. They've just changed their names. They've become more sneaky. They get us to sacrifice our lives to them without even realizing that we're doing it. And the problem is we end up wrecking our future by making our lives all about these lesser gods. And it happens when we substitute God in our lives for things like power or um, uh, money or love or sex or fitness or status or whatever it may be. Do you want to wreck your life? Then make your life all about one of those things. The sneaky idol that I, we're going to address today is the idol of success. And so if you ask me, how do you wreck your life, way, I, uh, your life, Wes? I would say to you, make it all about success. Last week we looked at a miracle that Jesus performed uh, whenever there were ten lepers uh, who came to him. He uh, healed them, all ten, but only one came back to say thank you. Only one came back to express gratitude. And that was the focus of the story. Well, today we're going to look at a man in the Old Testament and what he thought he could use to save his life from the leprosy that he had. So we're going to be reading in 2 Kings chapter 5. And this is probably the most famous story in all of 1 and 2 Kings. And some of you are thinking, I don't know one story in 1 or 2 Kings, but today we're going to change that. So 2 Kings 5, and we're going to be verses 1 through 15, but I'm going, only going to read right now verses 1 through 3. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. This chapter of scripture demonstrates that success alone could not save Naaman's life from leprosy. Greatness could not cure him from the disease that he so desperately needed to be saved from. The disease that was killing him. And so what I hope that you will learn today is that if you want to wreck your life, then make it all about success. 
How can success wreck your life? Well, when you make your life all about success in what you do, in who you know, or in what you know, you are setting yourself up for a disaster. So we're going to start by looking at the success in what you do. Now, Naaman is a very successful man. The very first verse just kind of pours it on, so we know this is kind of the top-tier kind of person. He had risen to success through the military career. In fact, the king of Aram, who was the Syrian king, this is Syria, he considered Naaman to be a great man. Paul House comments, he writes this, he says, He is successful in his military career, for he commands Syria's army, a unit that allows Damascus to dominate the region. His king duly praises him for his work. So success had proved to be a worthy aspiration for Naaman in his day and age. Verse 1 describes Naaman, whose name means beautiful or pleasant, as at the height of success or glory for a man that's living in his, uh, in his day. But the last five words of verse 1 discounts the rest of it. Did you see it? It says, but he was a leper. All the success in the world was useless for Naaman because it would not be able to overcome this social alienation that he would have because of this disease or the emotional despair that he would go through because of this disease or the physical limitations that we expect would eventually come on him because of this disease. He was figuratively and literally a man whose life was falling apart. So Naaman is a dead man walking. He desperately needs a savior because the success he had been living for is unable to save his life. And then enter the Savior who's coming uh, to save him. And this person is the total opposite of this successful captain of the army. The scripture says it was a little girl. And she had been taken captive from Israel um, and now was a servant to Naaman's wife. Burke Long notes the significant contrast between these two people. He writes, she is an Israelite. He is an Aramean. She is a little maiden. He, a great man. She is a captive servant. He, a commander. He has fame in the king's estimation. She has none. For she simply waited upon Naaman's wife. This slave girl was at the bottom rung of society. She was kidnapped. Maybe her family was killed. And now she's living as a slave to the head of the army's wife. This man who probably was responsible for what happened to her family and ultimately to her. But here's the key. She, not him, knew the way to healing. So you kind of start saying, so what is success anyways? Well, I would say to you that success is not all bad. We need to hear that. Success is not all bad. Success in and of itself is not a sin. It's not a wrong thing for us to want to be successful. Inside every man and woman is this desire that's very deep and it's there to succeed. The drive to do well, to make a a mark uh, on, on life, to make something of your lives, to actually make a difference in the world. And I believe that God's given us that desire, that drive for success. In Genesis 1.28, God's created the first man And we read that God created the man in his image. He blessed them. And then he said to him in Genesis 1 verse 28, Be fruitful and multiply. 
and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This was a command to the first man and woman, but it extends to you and me. In other words, you're not here to be irrelevant. You're not here to live life on the sidelines, to sit on the bench. You're not here to sit back and watch life happen while other people live. You are here to exercise God's creative rule over the earth. To be fruitful. To raise families. To make communities. To build cities. To lead societies. To shape culture. You are here to shape your, or to steward your unique gifts and your passions in a way that make a God-shaped difference in our world. That's what success is. When you take your unique gifts and your passions and you use them in a way that makes a God-shaped difference in our world, that's what true, honorable success is. And each of one of us is made for it. Scripture contains all kinds of stories of men and women who've impacted the world with this God-shaped success. Uh, Moses led the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. Uh, Esther stood up to that tyrant king. David stood up to that giant Philistine. Human beings were created to do great things. Well, that's still true today. The problem is each of us has been corrupted by what the Bible calls sin. So now our drive for success gets distorted. And sin is this toxic mixture of greed and fear and the desire for power and glory for ourselves. And so what was created to be or intended to be a righteous longing to use our passions to make a difference in the world is not the same as this compulsive uh, desire to build up our own kingdom with our names stamped on the top. Wes's kingdom, that's what I want. I want the best job, the best title, the best house, and the best town with children who are very successful. And if I'm not careful, then I'll do anything in order to achieve that. Because that's what society leads us to do. So the question you should ask yourselves is what am I willing to sacrifice for success? That reveals whether success has become an idol in my life. Because if success is ultimate, I'll sacrifice anything for it. Naaman had leprosy, but our diagnosis is no better. Sin. Warren Wearsby writes, leprosy was not merely a surface eruption. It was deeper than the skin. How like sin. The problem is not on the surface. Deeper than the skin, the problem lies in sinful human nature. He goes on. Sinners cannot be changed by shallow surface remedies. They need to have their hearts changed. So a clear application for us from this passage is to take note of where success ultimately comes from. Did you see that in verse 1? It says, Naaman was a great man. He was highly respected because by him, notice, the Lord had given victory to Aram. Naaman, like you and me, owed all his success to the Lord. We are not to worship success but the God by which we are able to achieve success. So if you want to wreck your life, let the success in what you do become ultimate in your life. We're also tempted to make life all about success in who we know. Once Naaman discovered this bit of knowledge, that there was this slave girl who said, if you could get to Samaria, 
he said, I've got to get there. And so he decided to, do, uh, to use success in who he knew. He knew some people who might be able to pull some strings. Let me read to you verses 5 through 7. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver, and six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. The captain of the army acted like a captain who was successful. He said, who do I know that can help me? And so he went to the king. And the king had a vested interest in the military hero's life. So he did what every king would do. He reaches out to the other king. And he sends to him these treasures and this kind of letter of reference. And um, changes of clothing. I guess that was a big deal. And the king of Israel acts like a king. And he reads into it and he says, I'm being set up here. I can't, I can't heal a man of leprosy. What is he doing? He must be trying to pick a fight. He must want to go to war. Well, Naaman expected that due to the gifts and the letter that the king of Israel would command this prophet in Samaria to cure him. And then he could go home a healthy man. He thought he could use his success to deal with his problems. But Naaman did not understand that there are some things that only God can do. Success was ultimate to Naaman, so he was still focused on who he knew, who he knew that could do something about this. So he takes out that large sum of money, the letter of recommendation, goes to the highest authority in the land and says, heal me. But Israel's king was not happy with this whole idea. In 1964, Paul McCartney composed a song. It soared to the top of the charts. It's a song that says, can't buy me love. And it's going to run around in your head all day now. And he said this about that song. He says, the idea behind it was that all these material possessions are all very well, but they won't buy me what I really want. He actually went on to reverse his comments on this because materialism became pretty important to him. But I think there's a truth found in the lyrics. There are some things that money and influence and success cannot buy. Naaman was about to bump up against that reality in life in a very harsh way. So Naaman and the Syrian king thought that Israel's God was like the rest of the gods of the world and that Naaman would get a cure for his leprosy because of his high achievement. That Israel's God would be pleased. Oh, who look who's come to me. And because you've come to me, I will heal you. So a cure would be easy to receive. But on the other hand, Israel's king is nervous because he knows this might lead to war because he knew the one true God is not on a leash. Tim Keller writes, Yahweh could not be bought or appeased. You may be able to manipulate the gods of religion, especially by offering them hard work and devotion, but the one true God cannot be approached like that. Whatever he gives us is a gift of grace. Well, Naaman really was a good and accomplished person. But that just proves the point to us that it doesn't matter who you are. The finest person in the world doesn't have the slightest idea of how to truly search for God. 
He pulls strings. He drops names. He whips out his checkbook. And he goes straight to the top. And this is the way you deal with all important human beings. So why not an all important God? Well, if you're going to make your life all about success and who you know, it better be in knowing the Lord Jesus. The role of the servant girl, the role of the servant girl, that's the critical relationship in the story. Without knowing her, Naaman had no hope. If success is in who you know, Naaman overlooked the most critical person in his circle. And who wouldn't overlook her? A little handmaiden servant? You know, for some people, you are the critical person in their life. Because you have the remedy for their souls that they so desperately need, and they may not even know it. Now, the servant girl had every reason to stay silent and to watch this uh, name and suffer because of what he had done to her and probably to her family. But her life was about more than retaliation. She decided it was, she was willing to put her life on the line and her reputation and what she wanted on the line for the sake of this man. She did what we are all commanded to do as ambassadors of Christ, which is just to speak up, to share what you know, and then you trust God for the outcome. People can only get you so far. Our true hope should be in God. When you make your life all about success in who you know, you're setting yourself up for failure, unless it's in knowing Christ. So the king of Israel tears his, argument, uh, his garments, and as he's doing that, because he thinks we're going to war, uh, it says that Elisha knew what was happening. He hears about the predicament, he sends word to the king, and he says, send Naaman to me, I'll heal him. And so Naaman is willing to do just about anything, so he goes, verses 9 through 12, let me read that for you. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. You know, I find this particular part very interesting. It's as if Elisha knew precisely what the sin struggle was in Naaman's life. It was his pride. So rather than going out himself and saying, oh, great, valiant warrior, where are you, you know, aching? He sits inside and he says, sends his servant out. You go deal with him. Tell him to go down to the river, wash seven times, he'll be healed. That's what he says. Well, that offends Naaman. He says, what kind of honor is in that kind of, you know, uh, uh, healing? And so the task that was assigned to Naaman was beneath him. And Naaman was convinced the task of washing in the Jordan is absurd. He thought what he already knew, the rivers in Damascus, they're better than this. Israel doesn't have good rivers. If it's just washing, then I'll go wash somewhere else. True success, though, was to be found in humility and obedience. Naaman expected that Elisha would take the money or maybe assign some great task. Go slay a dragon, and then you'll have your healing. But Naaman in, Naaman's entire worldview is being challenged right here. He is coming face to face with God who is sovereign, not controllable. 
And to Naaman, the assignment of washing in the Jordan is insulting. Well, anybody could do that. But isn't that the message of the gospel? Anybody can do that. Salvation is available for anyone, good or bad, weak or strong, rich or poor, success or failure. Have you noticed the gospel of Jesus opposes our worship of success at every point? Naaman, to be cured, had to listen to a slave girl, bottom rung of society. And later on, rather than listening to the prophet, he had to listen to the prophet's servant. God sent his message through the lowest rung of society's ladder to a man who was about as close to the top as you could be without being there. Well, think about it. How did Jesus come? Did he come as some successful warrior or king? Paul says about Jesus in Philippians 2, he says, Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Every single time Jesus is lowering himself on the ladder of success, one rung lower, one rung lower, while we're tempted to climb one rung higher. The first to seek Jesus found him in the most unexpected of places, a stable in a small town. William Billings wrote, Seek not in courts nor palaces, nor royal curtains drawn, but search the stable, see your God extended on the straw. That may be exactly why people missed the gospel, because they overlooked the lowly Jesus. So the most exalted earthly king and humblest of servants find God in the same place by coming before Jesus so once more, it's the servants who speak to Naaman. Let me finish the passage, verse 13. Then his servants come near and speak to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. When he returned to the man of God with all his company, and came and stood before him. He said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. There's a significant juxtaposition of comments that uh, Naaman makes. Earlier, whenever he finds out he's supposed to wash in the Jordan, he says, Behold, I thought. But then he comes here and he says, Behold, now I know. And he says, I know there's no God in all the earth but in Israel. This statement indicates conversion. The disease of leprosy had left his body, and the disease of sin is covered, by, uh, not by some great act he had done, but on faith in God to save him. If you want God to save you, all you need is need. You don't need anything more than just need. We come to God saying, look at all I've done. Look at how great I am. I live in an honorable way. And God just wants us to look to him and wash, be washed of the sins that are in our hearts and our lives. When you make your life all about success, you are setting yourself up for a wrecked life. Do you have need today? If you have never received the Lord Jesus, then the scriptures tell us that you have need for forgiveness of sins. And if you want God's grace, all you need is need. 
You do not need success in the eyes of the world. You simply need a successful exchange of your sins onto Jesus and his righteousness onto you. An idol cannot give you what you need most. Some people think that, think that idols have no power, but they do. Idols have the power to make you throw away your life, to wreck your life by spending your life living it, making it all about them. What an idol does not have is grace, and that's what you and I need the most. Our Father in God, we thank you that when we come before you, we can bring empty hands, and you will pour onto us all that we need. Lord, we pray for those here who need to make a decision, a decision to follow you, or to recommit to you, or maybe to join this church, Lord, that you would bless them in it. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Come to a time of invitation. God's speaking to your heart. Maybe it's about salvation, baptism, church membership. I'm going to be waiting down front. I'd love to meet with you. You stand, our choir will sing, and you respond. second. Just want to give you a couple quick reminders. Uh, first of all, uh, we have our Christmas pageant. If you can't tell, we're getting ready for it. And I know they've got some rehearsals that are going to happen all afternoon. So if you don't have tickets yet, you need to pick those up. And their performances, uh, uh, December, what's the date? 7th, 8th, and 9th, Friday. There's two on Saturday, one on Sunday. You're going to want to get your tickets for that. Bring a friend, be praying about it. It's a wonderful way to uh, introduce our community to our church. So y'all uh, plan on being a part of that. Um, also, as we're headed towards the end of the year, I want to encourage you uh, to think about us as, in, in your giving and uh, in your tithes and offerings as you close up the year. It's really important that we all contribute and be a part of that as we come to the close of the year. If you're a college student, I think y'all have got lunch and Bible study over there waiting on you, so y'all can head over to 1420. And if you have prayer needs, we have some deacons down front. They're wearing red name tags. They'd love to pray with you. But um, we're going to go ahead. I'm going to have you stand, and I'm going to pray, and we will be dismissed. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful time it is for us as the people of God to gather together and God to come before you and to consider your word and to worship you and to remind ourselves what's most important, which is you. I pray that you would help us to live for you. I pray that you would help us to um, uh, confess the sins that we, those things that we put in front of you. 
And Father, as we head into this Christmas season, that we would be reminded that our King is Jesus. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.